Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. We're here at Roberta's in Brooklyn um, at Heritage Radio Network, as usual. And I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And I'm holding a book right now. It's very interesting. Um, first of all, it seems to me that there's a new book or movie about a certain U.S. president um, every year. And this book really stood out to me, though, because it is about, of course, Abraham Lincoln. But it's called Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. And the author is Ray Catherine Amy, and she's on the phone right now. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Yeah. Congratulations on this book. It's so interesting, and it's so rich with historical detail. And, oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, oh, it's wonderful. And it seems like this is your bread and butter um, as a you know, food historian. Uh, you've written many books, including uh, Soda Shop Salvation, Food Will Win the War, and A Prairie Kitchen. So, so tell me a little bit more about your work and, and the larger uh, goals of digging up old recipes. <laughs> well, I, thank you so much for your, for your kind words. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that you like the book. Um, what I started out to do and what my goal is, and I'm, I'm glad you asked it that way, is to bring the flavors and textures of the past into modern kitchens so that we can taste how these foods that help shape our nation and help shape the people who lived in it um, and see how they're different from what we eat today and become enriched by not only the foods themselves, but as we ponder how people, you know, cooked and made, developed their own recipes and ate them, kind of give us some insights into the way of life and the character of the people. Mm. It is really interesting, and it's also interesting just also from an agricultural perspective and, and what uh, environmental uh, and, you know, just uh, industrial uh, developments have changed the way we eat. Um, very fascinating in many different levels, I guess, looking in the past. Um, well, you know, I mean, it's like any any good recipe. Once you start developing it and, and you, you know, begin to put some ingredients in, you think, well, gee, I need to kind of maybe add this kind of a note to it or I need to add this kind of flavor, and it becomes just more, more, more complex <laughs> as you go along. Yeah, and there's some detective work I noticed that you've done, too, because there's sometimes recipes aren't always so clear um, or we don't have the same uh, cooking vessels that we that we used to do. So in adapting them for the modern kitchen, that's, I'm sure, very tricky. Well, it's, you know, I've worked with these kinds of recipes, um, 18th century recipes for, you know, 20 so years. So I have kind of developed my own way of working with them. And you're right, you know, certainly cooking equipment has changed and some of the ingredients have changed. But you know, it's it's really, you know, not that different. As I say in the book, you know, if if you were to build a house entirely using hand tools, people would think that, you know, you were, you know, some kind of an odd throwback. But it's really common for us to continue to use wooden spoons and saucepans and frying pans the way our great-grandmothers or great-great-grandmothers did. And, you know, the kind of the key difference is for baked goods, 
where in Lincoln's day his mother and his stepmother would have baked on an open hearth using a Dutch oven. And Mm -hmm. certainly there are people who use that today when you go camping. It's a marvelous piece of equipment. You know, our our stove ovens are just sort of a large Dutch oven. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, like a large cauldron of sorts um, that that really lasts forever, too. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was reading this book, you know, just some of the small details that, that made me aware of some of the differences in how we cook is that there was a lot more immediate manual kind of like at-home processing of, of ingredients, whereas we're so used to grabbing stuff that is maybe already pre-chopped or deboned and um, just minimally, you know, it's just totally broken down for you whereas in Lincoln's time they would grain or they would uh I I think you mentioned like with the corn kernels like some many households would uh crush the dry corn kernels into a grain yeah yeah it's I mean and that's that's you know, part of the interest, um, the interesting journey that Lincoln himself took, you know, when he was a boy and, you know, the really pioneering part of Indiana, he and mm-hmm. his, his father moved the family there when he was um, eight. And, you know, they were the first settlers in that community. So as you were saying, you know, we're used to just going to a store. Well, there weren't any stores. You know, it took, um, you know, a few years for the first merchant to come in. And the Lincoln family, one of Lincoln's jobs as a young boy, was to take the corn that they had taken off of the cob after it had dried and take, you know, these bags of dried corn, you know, some 10 or so miles down to the mill. Mm-hmm. And there his job was, and that first mill, instead of being powered by water, the way we we think of a lot of mills being mm-hmm. powered, this one was powered by his by each person's own horse. Mm-hmm. So not only would you bring your grain to the big grindstones that the person had. You put your corn in there, and then you drove your horse around in a circle to make the wheel go and, you know, grind the grain, and then you would give a part of the ground meal to the person who owned the stones. Well, at one point, Lincoln... uh, as he wrote in his 1858 biography, you know, he was not paying attention. I think he was talking to somebody, and he was driving the horse, and he kind of gave it a little too much flick with the whip, and the horse reared back and kicked him in the head. And Lincoln said, you know, and for a period he was dead. <laughs> and then the, the neighbors who were there said, well, no, he, he woke up a few minutes later and continued talking right where he had stopped. <laughs> So you know, it was you know part of Dangerous, the challenge. Of, yeah, yeah, part of part of the challenge of getting your own ingredients. But what fascinated me, Kathy, was as you be as I began to then look at Lincoln through the New Salem years and then the Springfield years when he and Mary are married, mm-hmm. how quickly industrialized food mm. and canned goods and foods, um, the raw ingredients from a wide range of the eastern half of the country made it to the central part of Illinois. Okay. So it's, you know, and then certainly by the time, by the time he gets to the White House and on that inaugural journey he's eating, you know, people are serving him very fancy, you know, French-American cuisine. (laughs) Well, that is is a very startling transformation, though, within such a short period of time um, that happened, you know, within one person's lifetime. and um, I, I understand, you know, as um, you know, as he became more uh, successful as a politician, of course, eventually became president. There was less cooking, but you were initially drawn to Lincoln because, at least in his um, early 
earlier days and also in his marriage um, while living um, in Indiana, he would cook. And that's something that you found. That that just absolutely stunned me. I came to, to the idea of doing the book uh, the year before the 2008 200th anniversary of Lincoln's birth. And because I had been working with these recipes for a long time, I thought, oh, shoot, that'll be easy to, you know, mm-hmm. to research and do. Well, six years later, here's the book. But one of the things that I found early on that was a real eye-opener is what you just referred to. One of his... The, neighbors mm-hmm. wrote up an essay after Lincoln had passed away and he talked about how Lincoln had come home you know from his work in the law office in Springfield and would walk in and put on a blue apron and help Mary cook dinner for their three boys who were living at home uh, and you know it just you know he kept a cow and the cow yes. was pastured in the common pasture with all the other cows in the center of town and then you know he would have to go pick up the cow, and at one point he told this little story himself that um, he didn't, it was a new cow, so he didn't really know what she looked like, but he knew what the calf looked like. Uh-huh. So he waited until the calf went over to um, oh. to drink milk from the mother, so he thought, ha, that's my cow, and he brought them both home. But Lincoln learned to cook as an, as an early you know, as a child, he grew up, you know, if you grow up in a one-room cabin in in Indiana or anywhere else for that matter, you're essentially being raised in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was exposed to how foods were prepared. He was exposed to how they were raised, you know, certainly. And, and you talked about, you know, being able to get our chickens already broken down. I'm sure he... Mm-hmm. Um, he hunted, although the the um, the history of that is is a little sketchy. There are some who say he really didn't hunt, and then there are others who say he went out with his dog and his gun, and he would hunt rabbits and and fowl, you know, regularly because of course there weren't you know meat markets uh-huh. <laughs> either. Pioneers, so, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then when um, he was 22, and he and his cousin and stepbrother took a flatboat filled with goods down to New Orleans, they had to first build the flatboat. And uh-huh. so the, his stepbrother and cousin you know, reported that they elected Abe Cook. Oh. For the for the months that it took them to build this boat, and then the you know the logic is then he would of course continue to cook on the the six week or month long journey down to New Orleans, and then a couple of years later when he was serving in the Black Hawk War, there's a wonderful anecdote, a series of of letters written to his former law partner William Herndon, who was gathering all the information about you know, Lincoln after he was assassinated. And George Harrison, not the musician, um, wrote about how he and Lincoln served in this unit and how they foraged, you know, through oh, abandoned right. farms. You know, so they're, you know, they're, they're cooking bread um, on ramrods over fires and they're, you know, serving bacon and they're, you know, mm-hmm. cooking chickens that they found that were scrawny and, you know, <laughs> scratching for a living. And so they put them to much better use feeding the troops. <laughs> So it's kind of a, a lifelong experience with, with handling with food. food. Yeah, mm-hmm. in exactly. so many different ways. Uh, you know, and I thought that that was just such a touching little glimpse uh, into his life. Um, the, the, the fact that, you know, even though Mary was already cooking, he came home and immediately started to help her. Um, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's something to say about a character, and especially for someone who we, we all see as such a great man. Um, he, you know, he probably wouldn't have 
had to do anything in the kitchen. You know, he has so much more important things to do, but just that, that he still did anyway. I think that that was very interesting. And, yeah, uh, that, that, that touched me, too, that, that avenue into their lives as a couple and their lives as parents. Um, you know, as I relate in the book, one of their neighbors said, you know, that, that those children, they had the run of the house. <laughs> you know, they spoiled them. They were, they were marvelously indulgent parents. Um, and so, it, you know, it, and another one wrote about how Lincoln, again, this human touch, would mm-hmm. come home and lay down on the floor and, and read out loud, mm-hmm. you know, read Shakespeare and, and other poetry, you know, mm-hmm. to just, you know, to the family. So, it's, you know, he's not all strong legal opinions and political activities. Right. You know, it's, it, there's a real human man there. And I found, you know, during the years of research, that, you know, as with, with you, you're, you're just drawn to that. It certainly, uh, you know, ha- makes this book have a place within the canon of Lincoln uh, biographies. It's a, it's a real human glimpse. Well, I hope so. Thanks for saying that. Um, we're going to have a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back to chat more. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. All right, we're back chatting with Ray Catherine Amy. She's the author of Abraham Lincoln in the Kitchen, a culinary view of Lincoln's life and times. All right, so this is also a really fun book. Um, and there's recipes, 55 of them, that you've yes. adapted. Um so tell me, which ones uh, are your favorite? Oh, There's... that is always the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find that I'm drawn to the ones, and, and that's you know essentially what I try to do with all of the books, is use the recipes to tell a story. Uh-huh. So the ones that help me tell the story best are, are the ones that I you know tend to kind of be more favorite of mm-hmm. mine. Certainly the Corn Dodgers is one that... You know, is a it's a basic kind of a sturdy corn muffin sort of a okay. thing. And well, it's as I was sorry. reading about it, I had no idea what the Dodgers. Uh, it was like corn. <laughs> what are, are they like a cake or a pancake? I was like so confused. Well, it's 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 like a pan fried cornbread. Okay, but it's a little bit sturdier than the cornbread that we use because okay. most of our cornbreads are leavened. leavened yeah are leavened with, you know, baking powder, which makes them, you know, fluffier. This, mm-hmm. this has just a little bit of baking soda in it, and it's sturdy enough that it's the kind of thing that, and it's, it's essentially, you know, just cornmeal and water. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the kind of thing that Dennis Hanks, who is Lincoln's cousin, you know, wrote about, you know, Lincoln would put them in his, in his homespun pants pocket, and then when he was taking a break from plowing the fields, um, you know, would just, sprawl down under a tree with a book and mm-hmm. pull corn dodgers out of his pocket and, and munch on them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not a difficult recipe to make. It's one that 
is is like other pioneering recipes or, mm-hmm. or recipes that even today we all make commonly. Yeah. You you have that recipe. You don't have to look it up. You have the, some of those recipes in your hand and your heart, mm-hmm. and you know exactly how to make them. So that 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 drew me to that one. Um, and the other one uh, that is sort of in kin with that is the recipe is the closest we have to a recipe that Lincoln or Mary Lincoln or either of Lincoln's mother or stepmother have. Mm-hmm. And it's a recipe that Lincoln himself gave in both a White House discussion of an incident and when he was debating Senator Douglas during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And he talks about the gingerbread men that his mother used to make. Oh, that's and something he, we still do. Yeah, we do, but we don't, <laughs> because the gingerbread men that Lincoln talks about, he gives two ingredients. He says, "My mother used to get sorghum, which is a oh. you know a, a plant-based syrup, sort of like molasses, but not quite as robust to okay. my taste." And then he said, "And she would get ginger." So he's giving us the two key ingredients, and what's important, I I think, is that it's not the the what. He, he doesn't say she she doesn't have, you know, all of our gingerbreads, the ones I make anyway, have, you know, cinnamon or allspice or nutmeg or cloves in mm. addition to ginger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's this rich body of mixed spices. Right. This one is just ginger. And I believe him to be giving the recipe accurately because he was raised in the kitchen. He mm. would know. So, I, you know, I, I looked at, you know, you, when you're doing this kind of research, you not only look to the biography, you look to, you know, are there any recipes that have been attributed to Lincoln? If you go on the web, you find there are two or three that everybody talks about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I saw, you know, Abe Lincoln's gingerbread men, and they were, you know, either they were multi-spiced, mm-hmm. and they were the kind of thing, you know, that you think of at Christmas time, you know, rolled out, cut out cookie. Mm-hmm. Well, Mary Lincoln, or Nancy Lincoln, Abe's mother, would not have had a tin cookie cutter. It just wouldn't have existed right. in pioneering Indiana. I can't so imagine. I, went, I don't have yeah, cookie cutters. I, I just, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you, you talked about the detective work. Well, this was one, you know, where I then began looking at original sources, and I discovered an 1828 recipe for gingerbread that was seasoned only with ginger. Mm-hmm. It used molasses, not sorghum, but I figured, well, it was an Similar. East Coast recipe. Okay. So I would, you know, give credence to the Midwestern perspective and developed it. In, and Miss Leslie, who wrote that cookbook, said that she described the dough as kind of being clay-like. You know, she oh, described right. it's like, like kids' Play-Doh. <laughs> she didn't use those words, of course. And she described and you can roll it into a coil and make it into a, a honeycomb kind of shape. You know, a beehive shape. Right. And I thought, well, shoot, if you can do that, you can make a man out of it. And by golly, you can. So, <laughs> so you know, when I develop the recipes and be, when I write them, I try to be very, very careful about bringing the reader along to how I develop the recipe, where I found the clues, and to make my logic very clear. Mm-hmm. Because, we, because it's Lincoln and, right. and any other historic period for that matter. You don't want to say that something is if you don't have it in a primary source. Right. So, you know, I just, where I'm making inference, I, you know, I let readers know what my logic is and where my sources are and how I developed it. But I truly believe that based on this 1828 recipe, this is something that would have been very much akin to the kind of 
gingerbread man that Lincoln had and shared with a young neighbor who swore he loved gingerbread more than anybody else Mm -hmm. and got less of it. And so when he asked Abe for a gingerbread man, Abe gave it to him and he crammed it in his mouth, according to Lincoln, and ate it in two bites. (laughs) So this ginger cookie, this gingerbread man, has that kind of textural clue, too. Um, So... I'm I'm a little curious right now um, when you mentioned that it was just only pure ginger as the seasoning and, um, you know, for something that is such an aggressively flavored cookie, do you think that originally gingerbread men were, were made for more medicinal purposes? Boy, that's a really good question. Certainly ginger has a long-standing yeah. um, history of Circulation being medicinal. Boosting, yeah. yeah. Um, and I really... You know, don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I can't say that I have seen, you know, take two gingerbread men and call me in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, listed anywhere. I've not seen it in, you know, I've, where I've seen gingerbread in early cookbooks. Um, it's in the, the cake cookie section, right. and it's not in the back of the book where you have all those medicinal recipes. Hmm. So, you know, I think it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, and you know, without doing some more research, but gosh, it's an interesting <laughs> notion. It, I, you know, I may have to follow up on that. <laughs> Wonderful! I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, so this might be a very silly question, but it was the first question that struck, uh, you know, that came through my head when I saw this book. Um, was Lincoln a foodie, or is this <laughs> out of context? A, you know, that, well. <laughs> You know, foodie certainly, of course, is not a 19th century no, term. No, it was but, not. But, but the question gets to one that I struggled with as I was doing the research. And, again, it's one that you don't have a clear historic answer to. Mm-hmm. You have half the people who say he didn't care about food at all. Well, yeah. You have other people who say he there were things that he liked. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's... His, um, He's quoted as telling a fellow lawyer, you know, people should eat foods that are good, for, that agree with them, okay. and apples agree with me. So mm-hmm. apples were one of his favorite foods. Okay. Um, you know, there's the, the famous Mary, uh, Mary Todd white almond cake that he's rumored mm. to have said was the best cake he ever ate. Um, you know, they were courting at the time, so who knows? <laughs> um, you know, and that's that's kind of an inferred quote. You know, I, I never did nail down a, a strict primary source for that. Oh. But he certainly... What, there's another anecdote that I use in the book where he was in the White House and a, a woman came to kind of share a family meal with them. People were always just kind of dropping in, and if you were around, you got invited to, mm-hmm. to come in and eat at sort of a family table, not a state dining table. And she said he would he would be there like a farmer, and he would be passing, you know, he would pick up, um, you know, the serving dish, and he would kind of ladle with one hand and say, you must try some of this. Oh, so, okay. um, you know, like he I had a real think, appreciation, at least. I think he did. Um, yeah. You know, but I think those who talk about him not caring about what was put in front of him, I think it's like with any any person who is fully engaged in an intellectual um, enterprise. Mm-hmm. If you're sitting around the table talking with other lawyers while he's out <laughs> riding circuit through Illinois. You know, they're they're sitting around there. They're talking about the cases they've just heard. You know, so he's so eating becomes a mechanical process. 
mm, um, yeah. at that point because because the rest of you is so engaged in the intellectual part of your life, and I think that was probably true with some political discussions as well. Um, I mean, he did say that he liked oysters, but only if they were cooked. Okay. <laughs> so he did have some preferences that, yes. that he liked. He didn't just eat onto. whatever was plopped in front of him uh, indiscriminately without, you know, opinions, which is... Um, you know, I, I sense that, you know, you certainly read about his essential kindness and his uh-huh. generosity of character, so I don't think he would have gone, I don't like that, and pushed the plate aside. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I, it's just, you know, it, it's an unanswerable question right. so far. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Yes, he did have preferences. There were things that he enjoyed. We have some sense of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did sort of, you know, behave like an omnivore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. You know, flipping through the um, it's it strikes me how how much food and you know are just national I guess food trends and the types of dishes we eat evolves so quickly um, you know I was just chatting with a, a friend recently who went upstate and they were eating all these foods that were a little strange she said there was like a ham salad it was very 50s and like there was older oh, yeah. ladies and we we're like everything just changes so quickly um, and, you know, who knows what we'll be eating in another 50 years and if it would, pizza will look totally archaic. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, flipping through the, some of the recipes here, there's an oyster stew, which sounds delicious. Um, and then there's uh, these uh, the ketchup, which I found interesting because there's some standbys that it just never go away. You know, yes. ketchup. <laughs> That's Still yeah, going. And, and <laughs> Strong. The, well, and, and the ketchups back then were, you know, kind of tomato was sort of um, an afterthought. You mm. know, you have you have mushroom ketchup, you have lemon ketchup, you have cucumber ketchup. You know, sort of, if it didn't move, you pickled it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, refrigeration was I don't know why available. that's so funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. It is. It is. You know, I mean, refrigeration, um, there was ice, there were ice houses, Mm -hmm. but it's, you know, you certainly had to go the extra step to kind of either smoke things, Mm -hmm. pickle pickle meat in terms of brine, um, and, you know, then pickling vegetables or putting up jams and jellies, you know, preserving them with sugar was, you know, an important thing. And certainly... That's um, certainly coming back in a big way these days, too. It is. It yeah. is. And, and, you know, you get to control when you do it now. You know, well, back then, oh, too. Right. You know, control <laughs> the, the, the flavor palette that you want. And, you know, you just find some of these artisan pickled things then and now. You know, just really, really good um, accents to any kind of a, a meal. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at these pineapple preserves, which sound delicious. Oh, that is so good. And then that's, Very you know, sim- if... Simple. Very simple, yeah. and that's what you can do when you get a, a pineapple that isn't quite what you expect that it will be. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've all had those pineapples where you get them home and you go, oh, <laughs> okay, I guess that won't be, you know, sliced nicely on the salad plate. We have to do something else with it. <laughs> that's always a good cure or solution. Um, yeah, so yeah. we just have a couple minutes left, but I'm um, just wondering, um, what's next for your culinary journeys? Are you... Washington, anyone? (laughs) Um. (laughs) Um, That's a very, very good question. I have some thoughts in mind, and um, when I'm just beginning to develop where I'm going, you know, it's not soup yet, so I don't Mm -hmm. talk about it. (laughs) Okay, no worries. But we'll definitely be checking out um, your blog, What Lincoln Enjoyed Eating. 
Um, you can also explore Ray's writing at kitchen.net. Um, and yeah, it's, um, yeah, check out Abraham Lincoln in the kitchen is out now from Smithsonian books. So thank you so much for joining and thanks so much for this very interesting book. I can't wait to make it for maybe 4th of July. Uh, some of the recipes that is. <laughs> thanks so much. I've, I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. Wonderful. All right. Thanks everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Test